My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here at the Gathering Place Church. All of you that are visiting today, it's great to have you in the house. So I was uh, driving home yesterday from uh, my son's soccer game, uh, Josiah. He's a special needs child that we adopted from Ethiopia, and he plays wheelchair soccer. And so as we were coming home yesterday, it was just he and I in the van, he said to me, Dan, yes, Josiah, you know, kids' questions are just great, aren't they? You never know what's coming. Does Easter have anything to do with God? Yeah, but he's 11. So, so for those of you that are really disappointed now that the preacher's kids don't even know what Easter's about, I don't know what to tell you. God called me. I didn't call myself. So talk to him about it. I said, yes, seriously, Josiah. I said, it's the, it's the greatest day of celebration for Christians all over the world. Jesus raised, raised from the dead, and Christians all over the planet are celebrating. He says, because I really want to get that in. You know, here's my moment. And he said, well, are we going to celebrate, Dan? I said, heck yeah. I said, we're going to go to church tomorrow, and then your mom is going to make that French toast that she makes every Easter. Oh, man, it's so good. And then he goes, yeah. And then he got quiet in the car, and he said, I love God. I said, why? And he said, because he makes great food. Sorry, honey. God's making the French toast, I guess. But the reality is Easter is a lot more than good food. Easter is about changed lives. That's why we can so easily say, without it being hype, Easter changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ moves him from being a religious leader and a teacher and a prophet to being God in the flesh, the Son of God. And he changes lives. One of the signs of a changed life is water baptism because just as Jesus died and was buried and then rose from the dead, for a person who places their faith in Christ, immediately you see in the Bible they are water baptized. And the reason you go under the water is because it's like a burial, that you're dying to yourself and to your old life. And you come out of that water and it's like being resurrected like your Savior and you're living a brand new life for God and God alone. So I'm going to celebrate some baptisms that happened right here on this campus last week. So let's look at these baptisms. There is Gabriel. (laughs) Way to go, buddy. No, I'm saying this for your brother. Yeah, there you go. Your cousin. That's what I'm saying. Your cousin. There you go. God can use anybody. Anthony. Next is Adrena. Congratulations, Adrena. Are you here? Wave your hand right over here. Awesome. And her awesome husband, Amor. Next. Isn't that, what a great name, Amor. And then Anthony. Anthony. Easter changes everything. Can you guess what the top ten fears are in America? Just, just, okay, spiders, somebody else? Speaking in public, somebody else? Huh? Dying. Eggs? Snakes. 
They come from eggs. Somebody else. Giants? Heights. Oh, she's going like this. Giants, heights. Somebody else. One more, huh? Public speaking. Somebody else? Not having enough money. We must be Americans because you guys are nailing them. That's great. Okay. Top 10, starting with number 10, and then going to one. Ready? The 10th top, the 10 of the top 10 is dogs. Especially your dog. He scares me. A little, it's about this big. Number nine, loneliness. Number 10, or number eight, I can count. Flying. Seven, death. Six, sickness. Five, deep water. <laughs> the surfer's going, yes, right, Jack. Four, financial problems. Three, insects and bugs. There you go, baby doll. Two, heights, and number one fear, which I've dedicated my life to, is public speaking. So why does Easter change everything? Because one of these ten, when it visits you, all the others disappear. It trumps them all. You can't do anything about it. You can't dictate when it comes or how it comes. You can't control it, and that is death. You and I were not created to die. We don't know how to handle it very well. I mean, even the death of our pets. How many of you ever had a pet die? Raise your hand. I remember my wife and I, we got married, and my dog hated her because, you know, my dog and I were together for 12, 13 years. And then when Hope came in, there was like serious jealousy. Have you ever had a pet jealous of someone? It's, I mean, serious, eating her clothes and stuff and just, just serious. And so we, we're, all of a sudden my dog was having a seizure one day. It was like healthy one day, the next day having a seizure. And we're like, whoa. We take him to the vet, take him in the back. We're sitting out front. This other family walks in, a mom, some teenagers, and the turtle. They go in the back, and they come out without the turtle. They're all weeping, and they leave. So you know what just went down. And I said to Hope, you know, when my dog dies, I'm, you know, I'm going to be sad, but I'm not going to cry. So the vet says, you, you want to come on back, please? And so we go on back, and the vet gives us the news and says, I'll give you a moment. What do you mean a moment? This has been my dog for 14 years. You're going to give me a, a moment? And the doctor leaves. We look at each other. My dog's on the operator or on the uh, on the table like this, and the tail's just batting like this, but it can't get up. And the eyes are like, "We're leaving now, right? We're leaving now, right?" You've been there. I know it's horrible. We boohooed like a couple of little babies. It was so painful. Then you move it into loved ones. Some of you have really experienced some devastating deaths of loved ones. And it's, and, it's, and it's not just the death itself, but it is the loss of the relationship. Like my dad died, my brother died, and you go to pick up the phone to call him, and you're like, oh, I can't ever call him again. That lostness is just, it, we're not, we weren't created by God to die. Sin entered the human race and gave us the death gene, and it causes us to begin dying as soon as we're born. But that is not what we are created for. And the most 
terrorizing part for the human race is not knowing where we go after we die. What happens after death? Fortune tellers, um, mediums, a multi-billion dollar industry. As human beings, we want to know what happens after we die. Death is one of the number one fears in the human race. Look what the Bible says about death. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Why? For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Isn't that an encouraging verse? Isn't that uplifting for this Easter morning? But I do want to say in response to that verse, the resurrection of Jesus Christ says four things. Number one, death is not final. When Jesus walked up to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend and Lazarus' sisters were grieving over the death of their, their brother. Jesus looked at Mary and Martha and said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus is not intimidated by death. He doesn't fear death at all. And there's a reason why. He conquered it. Look what the book of Hebrews says. Since we, God's children, are human beings made of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, became flesh and blood too by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die and in dying break the power of the devil who had the power of death. One of my pet peeves in life are followers of Jesus who are afraid of the devil. Jesus defeated the devil and death and the grave. We are the most liberated people on the planet. Death cannot hold the believer just like it did not hold our Savior. Only in that way could he deliver those who through fear of death have been living all their lives as slaves to constant dread. And I was reading about Jim Morrison this week. He was the founder of the group called The Doors. How many of you ever heard of that group, The Doors? If you, yeah. I mean, iconic. The reason Jim Morrison named the band The Doors is because he was fixated on the door to the other side. That's why he was breaking through to the other side. I mean, he was constantly thinking about the other side, what happens after death. He was fixated on it. And before his heroin overdose, he was walking around the streets of Paris. They said he'd walk for hours and hours and hours. Why? He's looking for the answer. He's famous, he's rich, and yet he spends hours just walking around lost. And he didn't know that Jesus Christ said, I am the door. I so wish Jim and the millions and millions of people like Jim Morrison, who are searching for the answer of life after death, knew that Jesus Christ is the door. And when you walk through the door of Jesus Christ, you get eventually to the other side when you die. And you know what the other side looks like? Jesus caught John, his best friend, up in the spirit and showed him the other side for the believer. Here's what the other side looks like. In the book of Revelation, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no pain, for the former things have passed away. 
That's why the death for the believer, though there is sorrow, there's not sorrow like those who have no hope. Those who do not know what happens after death. We miss our loved ones. But here's the reality. I know I'm going to see my brother and my father in heaven. I'm going to see them in just a little while. Not like today. But I'm going to see them again. It's like they moved to Texas or maybe somewhere better. So for the believer, you know, it's just a matter of time before we're reunited with our loved ones who put their faith in Christ. So number one, the resurrection says death is not final. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Number two, your life has eternal purpose right now. The resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just for the other side. It's for right now. The moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, your life immediately has eternal purpose purpose. You've got to get busy. Be about the Father's business. He's given you talents. He's given you gifts. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you Heaven's resources. He's given you a calling, the Great Commission, to love God and to love others in the name of Jesus. That is the purpose of your life. It doesn't matter how much you accumulate or accomplish or how popular you are or how much praise you achieve on this side of Heaven. It's not going to fulfill you. It doesn't matter how many people are following you on Twitter and how many likes you get on Facebook. If that is going to drive your self-esteem, you are a miserable creature. I mean, when I hear people say, well, I have 900 people following me or I have 1,000 friends. Really? Can you tell me their names? Can you tell me where they live? Can you tell me the last time you went to the movies together? Can you tell me anything about them? Friends. Those are my friends. We all need affirmation. We all need encouragement. But here's the reality, family of God. Affirmation from human beings is to be a supplement and no more. Just a supplement to true affirmation, which comes from God himself. God made you. He made you in his image. He made you for himself. He is love, and he made you from love and for love. So until you connect with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, you're going to be craving affirmation from people and from accomplishments and from accumulation on this planet. It will never satisfy you. I know when I was 19 years old, somebody invited me to church and I just laughed in his face. I was like, well, that's that's you're talking to the wrong guy. I know I got a hole in my soul, but I know that's not the answer. And so I had a girlfriend, I had a job, I was going to Ohio State University, and I kept taking more classes, kept going to more parties, kept doing more things, thinking the more I do, the more fulfilled I will be. But it was a paradox. The more I added to my life, the bigger the hole inside of me got. I would go out partying one night, and I would just pass out. I'd wake up the next morning, and the hole in me, I remember to this day what it was like. I'd wake up, and the hole in me was bigger than it was the night before. So I'd go out the next night and do it again. I did this over and over, and the hole just kept getting bigger until I went to church, heard about Jesus Christ, and I said, I went home and I prayed, and I said, Jesus, I don't know if you're real or not, but if you're who those people say you are, I'm inviting you into my life. And that was over 30 years ago, and I've never been empty or lonely since. I tell people, and I'll tell you today, if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, I can't prove it to you, but he can. All you have to do is crack your heart open and say, Jesus, if you're real, I want to know it. And he 
will begin proving himself to you because he is risen. Your life has purpose. I've officiated a lot of funerals. Some of them are just sparsely attended by people who have nothing good to say about the deceased. And they struggle when they try to do a eulogy coming up with something nice because you don't want to see something bad about the person in the casket. That's just, you know, it's not appropriate. So you... So they don't really have anything to say. Might read a scripture, and that's about it. Then I go to other funerals, and it's packed. And there's not enough time to say what everybody wants to say. Let me ask you, at that kind of a funeral, you've been to them, where there are just a ton of people, and people after person after person says things about the person. What are some of the things you hear them say about the person? At a funeral, it's packed. and Everybody wants to have something to say. What are some of the things you hear at a funeral like that? Pardon me? Self-sacrifice. He was so self-sacrificing. What? She was kind-hearted. She was generous. He made me feel loved. Good friend. You notice all of these comments are others-centered. Not, wow, they accomplished a lot. Boy, they sure could play the piano. Wow, they were really pretty. None of that matters. None of that matters. When your life is over at your funeral, people are going to stand up and think they did nothing for me. They did nothing for anybody. They just live for themselves. And nobody will have anything good to say. Or they will say that person was so others-centered. They were always doing something for someone else. You know what that's called? It's called the great commandment. Love God. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. It's that simple. It's about others. Look what the Bible says your purpose is once you give your life to Jesus. Ephesians says, It is God himself who has made us what we are and given us new lives from Christ Jesus. And long ages ago, God planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. You might think, well, that just sounds so boring. Boy, when you bring joy to someone else by paying their mortgage when they are financially struggling, or you console a friend when they are suffering, or you help somebody out in their time of need, the joy that happens is God. God is love. Do you know there's a Bible written called the Satanic Bible? Anton LaVey wrote it in 1963. Are you familiar with that? Did you know that? That in Satanism, there's an actual Bible because the devil perverts everything God does. They do a Catholic Mass backwards. They do, they pervert everything. He perverts everything God does. In the Bible, the Satanic Bible, there are ten commandments, just like in God's Bible. Do you know none of the commandments say worship Satan? All of the commandments are about self-indulgence. The devil knows the way we destroy ourselves is when we live selfishly. Because the Bible says the flesh will never get enough. If anybody's ever been addicted, you know that's true. Because once you start, 
that measure you started with doesn't satisfy after the while. And then you have to have more and more and more. It could be relationships from one relationship to another to another. It could be your career. I've got to get that raise. I've got to get that promotion. I've got to get the letters at the end of my name. I've got to get the guy. It, it, it never ends. Now that I've accomplished this athletically, I've got to accomplish that. And I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. You're never satisfied. Peace comes. When you give your life to Christ and you live for Him. And you live for the will of God. But here's the truth about life. Even when you find your purpose, your eternal purpose in Christ Jesus, life is hard. Have you found that out yet? Have you found that out yet? I hated hearing that when I was a a teenager. When an old person like me would say, life's hard, sonny. Well, guess what? Now I'm saying it. (laughs) Life's hard. This side of heaven, this fallen planet, this broken human race, it's hard. But the resurrection not only says that death is not final and your life has eternal purpose, the resurrection says you'll never be alone again. Look what Jesus says. So you believe in me now? Jesus replies to his first followers. The time is coming, indeed, it's already come, when you will be scattered, every one of you going home and leaving me alone. Yet, I am not really alone, but the Father is with me. Isn't that beautiful? I have told you all this so that you may find your peace in me. I'll tell you, I, one time I took a survey for about a month, I walked around and I asked everybody that I'd run into, I just said, can I ask you a question? Just total strangers. Yes. What are you looking for in life? Nice shallow question. What are you looking for in life? Do you know almost every single, it, 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 it shocked me. I kept getting the exact same answer over and over and over again. Peace. I just want peace. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you may find your peace in me. Jesus says, peace I give to you. Not as the world can give, my peace I give to you. And you know how you experience that peace? When you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, he completely forgives you of all of your sins. And the moment your sins are forgiven, you know what he does next? He breathes his Holy Spirit into you, into your soul. And your soul is filled with peace. It's the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say something really encouraging here. He says, Yet I am not really alone. I have told you these things so that you may find peace. You will find trouble in the world. You just want to say thank you for prophesying that over my life, Jesus. You will find trouble in the world. That word trouble there, let's see what it really means. See if you can identify with the definition of trouble as Jesus says it. Pressure, oppression, stress, anguish, adversity, affliction, crushing, squashing. Everybody say thank you, Jesus. Squeezing, distress, crushing grapes or olives in a press. You know, I appreciate Jesus telling us what to expect so it doesn't come as a, by a, surprise, as a surprise. But then he says this next phrase. But, everybody say but. But never lose heart. I have conquered 
the world. What does this mean? It means when you give your life to Jesus and he moves into your soul by his spirit, whatever troubles you have in your soul or in your life, Jesus can carry you through them. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Look what the Apostle Paul said. Now, we're going to read about Paul in just a moment. Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, forsaken by all of his friends, left for dead, stoned by rocks. (laughs) Just to clarify... Every once in a while, I just about lose the crowd. But but Paul says this, I can do, will you say this out loud with me? I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. Look at the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. For since he himself has now been through suffering and temptation. He's not just sitting in a white ivory tower. He's not sitting at the throne of God saying, you're going to have trouble on the earth, but you're going to make it. No, he went through the troubles you're going through right now. He lived as a human being. He feels it. He knows it. He owns it. He went through it. And he's alive so he can walk with you through your valleys. He says, for he himself has now been through suffering and temptation. He knows what it's like when we suffer and are tempted, and he is wonderfully able to help us. The book of Romans says this, Nevertheless, once the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will, by that same spirit, bring to your whole being new new strength and vitality. So the resurrection says death is not final. The resurrection says you will never, or your life has purpose. The resurrection says You will never be alone again. But here's what I love about the resurrection life of Jesus Christ more than anything. The resurrection says you will never be the same again. I'll tell you, some of you have heard me say this before, but I'll tell you again, especially for those who are visiting. I gave my life to Christ when I was 19 years old. My friends thought I was playing a practical joke on them. They were, they, they were, I was the most shocked that I gave my life to Christ because I really didn't think he was the answer. My friends were the second most shocked. They didn't believe me. At one point, I moved out here to San Diego. My best friend moved out here to Long Beach because he was in the Navy. After a few years of, of me being saved and walking with Jesus, and he realized it was real, he came down to San Diego, this is before the internet, he came down to San Diego with a video camera, and he videotaped me and said, nobody at home in Ohio, nobody from high school, nobody believes it's true. I try to tell them that you're a Christian now. That you're going to stay celibate until you're married and that you're a pastor. They don't believe me. 
They think we're playing one of our practical jokes from high school, even though it's been like three years. So he videotapes me and says, you tell them in the camera so I can take it back so they can hear it from you personally. You see, Jesus is real. It wasn't counseling. It wasn't drugs. It wasn't some kind of mental gymnastic. It was the risen Christ who entered my soul and began changing me from the inside out. You know, my father was a professed atheist. He was raised in the Catholic Church. He was a leader in the Catholic Church. My brothers were altar boys. I went to an all-guy Catholic high school. We were Roman Catholic. That's really Catholic. And yet my oldest brother... uh, was killed in a car accident. My father went to the funeral, waited until the funeral home was emptied out, and then my father climbed into the casket and asked God to exchange lives. Let my son live, and you take my life for his. And he climbed in the casket. And when it didn't happen, my father decided God wasn't the all-powerful God he thought he was. And out of unbelief and bitterness, he ran from God for 25 years. And he began reading all sorts of literature. And out of his anger and hard-heartedness, he became a professed atheist. Do you know what brought him back? My sister, who was a hardcore feminist, hard-hearted, angry, bitter woman. Gave her life to Jesus Christ. And she became so soft and so wonderful and so amenable, so beautiful, so kind. My father said, I can no longer be an atheist with integrity because of the transformation of your sister. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? You see, the transformation of a human being by the risen Christ is the greatest testament that Jesus has risen from the dead that there is. This week, as I ran into people from our congregation, went to choir practice, emailed a few people, I asked them this one question. And I'm going to give you a list of names. And what they said, I said, give me two words. One word, what you were like before you met Jesus, and one word that describes you after you met Jesus. And here's what they said to me this week. Emily said, damaged, liberated. Rick said, adrift, destined. Ella Marie said, self-righteous, then righteous in Jesus. David said, self-centered. Okay, I'm going to tell you which David this is. David Lotz. For those of you that are new to our church, David Lotz is Jesus Jr., okay? (laughs) This guy is serving, 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 serving. And he says he was self-centered. When you meet people like this, you know Jesus is alive. Because he said now he's others-centered. Amy, confused, peaceful. How lost, found. Shelley, rejected, wanted. David, well, he actually sent me jerk intolerable, were what, what he sent me. And he actually used a different word than jerk. And I said, I can't say that in church. Come on, seriously, give me something I can say from the pulpit. So he sterilized it. 
And it's selfish worshiper. Okay. Liz, confused, steady. Rick, a mess. A mess with a purpose. (laughs) Yeah, Rick Higgins, I'm telling off on who that was. And his purpose is to be more like Jesus. I like one time, well, I'll tell you, Mark's in a second. Brenda, my mother-in-law, unhappy. Can you imagine Miss Brenda being unhappy? Unhappy, happy. Laura, destroyed relationship with Jesus. Mary Jane, fearful faith-filled. Josh, our worship leader, ready for this one? Self-righteous. Josh, he's the most gracious guy I know. Self-righteous, gracious. Stephanie, our missions leader, ready for this? Purposeless. Have you ever been around her? Don't get close to her or you'll end up in India serving. Purposeless. Purpose-filled. Jeanette, David's wife, fearful. You would never imagine it. Hopeful. Jerry, self-centered, Christ-centered. Lewis, hopeless, hopeful. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this giving Jesus uh, praise today just by seeing these lives he's transformed? Mark, here's Mark, self-centered, less self-centered. One day I'm driving down the road with with, with, with Mark on our pastoral team. And I said to Mark, as the, you know, the senior leader in this church, the visionary, the one that's inspiring the team, I said, Mark, driving down the 15, going by Carmel Mountain Ranch, I said, Mark, we've got to be as much like Jesus as possible because people are following us. And he says, oh, I gave up on that a long time ago. He said, I'm just trying to be uh, as much not like the devil as possible. This is what I've got to work with, people. Cessia, fearful, peaceful, and Chris, decimated, relieved. I want to end today's message with one of the greatest testimonies you'll ever hear, and that's out of the Bible. I'm going to go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book that we are in as a congregation. Um, If you join us today, start reading the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the stories of Jesus' life. Then the book of Acts is the story of the apostles and the followers of Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. There's a man you read about in the book of Acts named Saul. And I want to pick up uh, his life right here in Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to do this quickly, and we're going to close today. Acts chapter 7. It says in verse 57, after there's... Killing the first Christian. This is the first martyr, Stephen. The first Christian to die for his faith in all the world. Right here, Stephen. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at Stephen with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, there's a book out front called Killing Christians. You want to pick it up because it's real-life stories of people right now in Syria and Lebanon and Egypt and the Middle East who are dying right now for their faith in Jesus Christ. They either have to uh, deny Jesus or be killed. 
And they're being killed by the thousands and thousands and thousands. I was reading this book just this week. I went to a restaurant, and there's, there was, I didn't realize it was on St. Patrick's Day. And so I go to the, the mainstream down here in Powell. You may know it. And the only place to sit is up at the bar. So, and I, I want to eat dinner. So I sit up at the bar, and I've got my book, Killing Christians. And I'm in the middle of a party. I mean, the place is packed. People are getting drunk, and they're just shouting. At, and I'm sitting there with my Killing Christians book. And this couple sits down next to me, and she looks over, and she goes, Oh, well, that's uplifting. It's <laughs> like, what are you going to do? <laughs> so I invited her. I hope you're here. <laughs> Verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at the time, a great persecution arose in the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. Paul was like the people you were reading that book out there, Killing Christians, where they are finding Christians and murdering them. This is what Saul was doing, torturing and murdering followers of Jesus Christ. You know what changed him? Let's read about it. In Acts chapter 26, his own testimony, I'm going to read it to you on this Easter morning. There's, I don't know if there's another testimony as dramatic as this one. Paul now is in chains. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel. They bring him before a king, King Agrippa. And it says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 26, Then King Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because the day I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused of by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem and all the Jews know, they knew me from at first, if they were only willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise. What is the promise? He's going to say it in a minute. Made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? That is the hope and the promise that a Savior would come, that he would die for our sins and be raised from the dead. And this Jew met the risen Christ. And he went around the world preaching the Christ. And now he's in chains because of it. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, compelling them to blaspheme. That means he tortured them until they would deny Jesus Christ. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That means to resist me. So I said, Who are you, Lord? Good guess. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When you touch a Christian, you're touching Jesus. But rise. I love Jesus. He's so full of hope. Look at this. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I had no hope that my father would ever get saved. He was so prideful and so angry. I would pray for my dad and I would say, God, I'm praying for my dad's salvation because I'm supposed to. But I have no faith that he will ever get saved. But then there's Jesus. Jesus touched my dad. And we were standing in church, raising our hand, worshiping. One day I looked over and I looked at my dad, raising his hand, worshiping Jesus. And I said, Jesus, you are amazing. Nobody in the church believed that the apostle or that Saul would ever be saved. Some of you today, you believe there are people that will never give their life to Jesus. You're wrong. Some of you today thought you would never give your life to Christ. And today I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it. And today may be your day of salvation. I've appeared to you to make you a minister and a Witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Watch this. Here's salvation. Here's what happens when you give your life to Jesus. To open, will you say this out loud with me? To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Before you come to Christ, your eyes are not opened, you're in darkness under the power of Satan, your sins are not forgiven, and you do not have the inheritance which is heaven. That's what Jesus just said. Once you give your life to Christ, your eyes are open. You go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. You receive your forgiveness of sins, and you have your inheritance, which is heaven. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared to those first in Damascus and Jerusalem throughout all of Judea, to them, that the Gentiles, that they should repent, Turn to God, do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple, tried to kill me. Therefore, I haven't obtained help from God. To this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than that which the prophets of Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. I'm going to close with this, his final words. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad because he was a highly intellectual person. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Christianity is not a blind faith. It's a rational faith. You can't study the, the resurrection without coming away believing in it. There's too much evidence. The physician Luke opens the book of Acts with Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead with irrefutable evidence. Verse 26, For the king, for whom before I also speak freely, knows these things. For I'm convinced 
that none of these things escape his attention since these were done. These were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Now he's preaching. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're almost persuading me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether just as I am, except for these chains. Jesus can change you. Jesus will forgive you right here today. I was sharing the gospel with one of my neighbors just this week. I said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And he said, I believe so. I said, why? He said, because I'm a good person. Right then, some people walked up. And so I could not tell him, I'm so sorry. That is not the right answer. I'm going to go back to him, though. I'm just going to let that hang. Here's the reason that's not the right answer. If you can get to heaven by being a good person, then Jesus' death on the cross was a waste. You're a sinner, just like me. We have all fallen from God's perfect, holy nature. He's a holy God, and we're sinful people. But because he loves you so much, He came to the earth as a man to die in your place. And if you do not receive him as your savior, you will have to pay for your own sins on judgment day. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says the penalty of sin, the payment for sin is not good works. It is death. That is why Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. Then he broke the power of death, rose from the dead, And now says through preachers like me and through friends and family members in your life who have told you the gospel, the good news. If you would receive Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins by faith, your sins will be forgiven immediately. Heaven will erase the record of your sins. And then he will breathe his spirit into you and you will become A brand new person, a child of God. In that instant, Jesus called it being born again. For some of you in here today, it's your turn. This is your time. The Lord has been tugging on your heart during this entire message. He's drawing you to himself. That's what that feeling is inside of you. He's drawing you to himself, Jesus, the door. And he's asking you to walk through the door today. All you have to do is pray a simple prayer. And ask Jesus Christ into your life. Turn your life over to him. Believe he died for your sins. Believe he rose from the dead. Confess him as your Lord and you shall be saved. Would you close your eyes with me this morning? First, I want to talk to those of you in here today. That have already given your life to Jesus Christ. But you have not been walking with him. You're that shallow person. That shallow Christian, that selfish Christian, the one who thanks God that you're saved and going to heaven, but you're living for yourself, not for Jesus. You're not living the Christian life. That's not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a life of thanksgiving that Jesus sacrificed his life for you so you could have eternal life. And now your life is to be lived for him. 
if that's you, and you are what's called a backslidden Christian, and you want to come home today, would you raise your hand right where you are and say, that you got my number. That is me. And I want to come home today. I see your hand right here in the aisle. I see your hand. Anybody else? Raise your hand and say, that is me. I want to get my life right with God today. I want to come close to Jesus like I was the first time he called my name and I came to him. I want my life to have eternal purpose again. I've lost my peace. I've been living for other things and I want to live for Jesus. Today's a brand new day. God's the God of new beginnings. He's the God who can forgive. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Say, I want to start new. I want to come home today. I see your hand. Anybody else? I see your hand right here in the middle. Anybody else? Raise your hand really high. Say, that's me. I want to come back to Jesus today. I've not been walking close with him. I see your hand back here. See, anybody else? Raise your hand. Say, that's me. See your hand. Somebody else. I want to encourage you, Christian, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't be that person that dies and all people can think of is how you live for yourself rather than living for God. Inspire others by loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Be the salt and light of the world. You have one life to live. Live it for Him. The other category of people I want to talk to you right now. You've never given your life to Jesus before. You've never experienced the joy of forgiveness. You live with guilt and shame. And Jesus wants to take that away from you today. Will you let him take that off of you today? The way you do it is by giving your life to him. He will prove himself to you. He will fill your soul with peace. He's alive. And he's calling you right now. If you've never turned your life over to Jesus before and you're ready to do it, will you raise your hand right where you are? Don't be afraid. Raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ today. I want my sins forgiven. I want him to be the Savior and the Lord of my life. Just raise your hand straight up. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to pray for you. Jesus will see you. Jesus will forgive you. Raise your hand. Let's ask Jesus to fill us with his peace this morning. Such a good God. Lord Jesus, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your resurrection life, which gives us eternal hope.
Josh begins to sing this song, I'm going to ask you to do this with me. If you are ready to live for him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As Josh begins to sing, would you just stand to your feet and begin to sing with me? On this Resurrection Sunday, let's give thanks to our Savior. And let's worship Him. Let's fill this house with praise before we leave. And go to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. As Josh begins to sing, would you stand and just worship with me? Let's celebrate our Savior. Let's lift His name. Let's bless Him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. How dare I trust the sweetest rain, but holy trust in Jesus'
freak you all out. Next week I'll be back in my jeans. Go in the peace of Jesus Christ. Prayer teams come down front. If you have sickness in your body, need prayer, didn't raise your hand earlier, come down. They're going to pray for you. The prayer teams will be down here. Jesus loves you. I love you. Have a great Easter.